Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Michael Gustavuson, who's the president of UMass Memorial Medical Center in central Massachusetts. Dr. Gustavuson started his career in general surgery and spent two decades holding various leadership roles at Harvard-affiliated hospitals, Harvard Medical School, and Partners Healthcare. And there's one more Harvard connection that we share. He's one of the first surgeons to receive an MBA from the Harvard Business School in 1998. I was class of 2016. I'm looking forward to getting a hospital-based perspective from him on COVID-19 and to talk about its lasting impacts on healthcare and society, among other things. So Dr. Gustavuson, thanks so much for being with us today. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. So can you start by telling us a bit about yourself and what led you to your interest in becoming a physician in the first place and then pediatric surgeon? So I grew up in uh, West Virginia and I uh, went to undergrad in West Virginia, WVU Medical School. And my brother, who's 13 years older than I am, um, actually became a surgeon, ended up being the only pediatric heart surgeon in West Virginia. And it spent 40 years serving the state. So it was always an inspiration to me. And so I definitely uh, went to the medical route following him. I loved pediatrics because it was really a a chance to uh, take care of little kids, do a lot of critical care and surgery. So I thought I was going to end up as a a lifelong pediatric surgeon. But as fate turned out, I uh, ended up doing hospital administration instead. I did my training at Ohio State and then research at Mass General, and then actually was able to finish my surgery training at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston. And that's how I ended up in Boston for about 30 years. That's wonderful. And we've had a lot of guests who started their careers as physicians, like Dr. Lois Nora, who's a friend and advisor. She was a neurologist and then went into being dean of several medical schools and then president of the American Board of Medical Specialties. So I heard her story of how she got excited and interested in in healthcare administration. I'm curious, what is yours? Well, I always like to tell folks that I, I went through the match once to become a pediatric surgeon and didn't match. At that point, there were 17 slots across the country. And I thought, okay, if I don't match again, what are my other career opportunities? So fortunately, I had a chair of surgery who was really cutting edge and forward thinking. He was one of the few surgeons who was very active in uh, kind of getting into the business of medicine, uh, participating in running the hospital at where he'd been. And he actually uh, encouraged me to think about that as a career option. So supporting me actually doing a fellowship for one year, getting exposure uh, in the hospital and in the department, doing a whole variety of, of different types of work. I really fell in love with that. And what I found almost immediately as a physician was the ability to, to be a translator between physicians and caregivers and between the administrative or more financial side, side of the house. And that sense of being able to add value and to be that power of being able to be a translator really inspired me. And so I decided that if I were going to do that, I wanted to get some formal training. So he actually sponsored me going to Harvard Business School full time. At that point, there were very few physicians getting MBA. I was the only the first surgeon to go through that experience. And I use things that I learned there every single day. It was probably one of the most useful two years of my life. Learning how to solve problems through the case method is really a skill set that's invaluable. And then in healthcare in particular, thinking about uh, managing performance, how do you move a large, complex organization in a strategic direction? And then how do you lead people and how do you lead an organization? 
I'm curious over the years of having various administrative positions, including now president of UMass, what are some of the key lessons you've learned about trying to transform healthcare organizations, especially large ones? Well, one of the things that I feel very strongly is that it starts with data. Healthcare is a very data-driven organization, particularly having a balanced set of indicators and data. So one of the, the things that I brought back from uh, business school exposure was this idea of a balanced scorecard approach. And the balanced scorecard is actually perfect for healthcare because you think back in the early 90s or mid-90s or 2000s, there was a lot of focus on financial performance. But the idea of being uh, very transparent around your quality outcomes or even measuring your quality or being transparent for patient safety didn't exist. And so that decade of the 2000 to 2010, after the IOM report came out, after quality reporting became publicly available, it was like the perfect time to create a balanced scorecard of measures. And that included having the, the boards start to think about quality and safety and patient experience and caregiver measures just as much as the financial measures. So that's, for me, it's a guiding starting point, having a balanced set of performance measures. And then um, having an explicit strategy, so being clear around what the goals that you're trying to accomplish, accountabilities, and having metrics, and then figuring out how you're going to communicate that in an inspiring way. And then really importantly, how do you get down so that the frontline staff, the everyday caregivers, can actually have a sense of what the goals and the priorities are and how they can contribute to that. One of the, the things that attracted me to, to UMass and that I was able to do in my previous role was a commitment to kind of a lean management approach, which is really grounded in every caregiver is a problem solver every day. To fix our safety issues, to fix our inefficiencies, we really have to have every single caregiver using their eyes and ears to identify our problems and our opportunities every day and then to bubble that up. Yeah, I like that. Uh, giving them direct line of sight, not only to kind of how the overall organization wants to perform, uh, how their individual day-to-day work applies to the overall organization's vision and mission, but then also to give them um, the power, the autonomy to make those right. improvements and changes. So that makes a lot of sense. The empowerment, to, the empowerment to be part of the, the solutions and to, to make their own work better on a day-to-day basis. Definitely. So speaking of problems that people need to solve, the last few months have completely changed the healthcare landscape with the pandemic. And we all know about the CARES Act and the, the bailout that the American Hospital Association had requested and was able to keep many hospitals afloat. Can you talk a bit about how COVID has affected UMass and what are some of the key things you all have done to weather the storm? Sure. UMass is a, it's the third largest academic medical center in the state of Massachusetts. It sits in the middle of the state. We take care of about one and a half million Massachusetts residents versus Boston, which has an incredible density of about six AMCs. Part of our role, part of our COVID story was figuring out how we take care of the central part of Massachusetts. We had our peak of COVID uh, late April. We had up to about 200 patients at the medical center, which was an incredible census for us to to deal with. We ran our uh, command center, our disaster emergency command center for over 100 days. So that's an unprecedented, you know, once in a lifetime phenomenon. We had a 21-step surge plan 
meaning uh, we had plans to turn medical surgical units into step downs or critical care units to open up old dormant spaces and turn them very quickly into ICUs to use our recovery rooms. We never got to the last step, which would have been using our operating rooms or our cath labs as ICUs, but we had done a lot of other steps to get to that point. So the, the thing about this pandemic that um, from the very start was challenging is needing to think about how we take care of our caregivers because they were just as much at risk. A lot of emergency situations, it's really more focused on taking care of a large number of patients. But in this scenario, we had risk for both our caregivers and our patients. And uh, going back to, to March and April, a large knowledge deficit around how are things transmitted? What was the status of testing? So every day, literally finding out new facts, uh, learning new things, and then how do you communicate that to a large workforce? It was a big challenge. Certainly. And I imagine uh, one challenge that's talked a lot, that has been talked a lot about was the fact that many people have delayed care and also health systems have had to put off the elective procedures that tend to make them stay afloat. So can you talk a bit more about that transition that you've had to make and if it's returning to normal at this point? Yeah. So during the actual peak of the pandemic for about three months, the ambulatory areas significantly closed down. However, what we did, as, as many places have done, was dramatically roll up our telehealth visits. We had only done a few thousand telehealth ambulatory visits leading up to, uh, to March. Up to the last couple of weeks, we've done actually 150,000 televisits. And so it's literally been an exponential growth in a very short uh, time period. You know, telehealth is here to stay. And we're going to be continuing that and then figuring out what's the best mix of in-person visits um, versus telehealth visits. So that was the ambulatory setting. For uh, surgery, elective surgery is the biggest area that dropped to about 25% of normal activity. But in terms of uh, emergency surgeries, emergency cardiac cath and stroke care, all of that continued about probably 50% of normal. We were worried that the volume for things like acute heart attack and stroke were dropping off and there was no good reason for that. So obviously some patients were staying at home, afraid to come in and are putting up with their symptoms longer than they would have otherwise. And so we saw patients who came in with more severe heart attack injuries or damage to the heart or more severe stroke damage than we would normally see, unfortunately. So we've done a lot of public education about it's safe to come back. The hospitals are safe. Hospitals are probably safer than many other places. And of course, we're redesigning as we now reopen more fully, we're redesigning the patient experience, uh, building in all the the right safety checks. One thing I would definitely um, say is that, uh, you know, our role at UMass here in, in the central part of the state was dealing with our own surge, but also uh, learning from other institutions. We had the fortune of following New York, following the experiences in Europe. For example, we did a grand rounds with an anesthesiology director from the, the epicenter in Italy and learned just in an hour discussion three or four really critical factors that then guided how we managed the pandemic in Massachusetts. So for example, we learned about the utility of proning the patients, so putting them on their stomachs for up to 18 hours a day, because this particular pulmonary condition responds to that as a key treatment. But that's not easy to do with somebody who's incredibly sick and intubated. So we developed proning teams 
that that was their sole responsibility is to go around and, and take care of the up to 80 ICU patients that we had and do that aspect of the care. We also learned that the recovery period for this was actually much longer, even for traditional ARDS, which means we needed to start to think about where were these patients going to recover. The nursing homes were going to be a problem because they were actually having a huge number of outbreaks because of mixtures of positive and negative patients. So we worked to develop a COVID-positive dedicated nursing facility with a partner. Same with LTAC facilities, uh, working with the city around our homeless population, another group that was at extreme risk because of the communal living situations and, and risk of spread. So, uh, And then most importantly, we stood up a field hospital, but 220-bed hospital. It took about nine days inside the convention center here in Worcester and took care of over 200 patients in just about uh, four to six weeks. And so, and it would have been prepared to do a lot more if we had needed it. So you can get a sense of how we were thinking about the entire community as the epidemic kind of of had ripple effects outside of our own walls. That's some incredible agility that you guys all proved. And fortunately, it seems like Massachusetts is one of the few states that seems to have done, done a good job of dampening the waves. Can you talk about what the most effective strategies were for education, as well as, you know, UMass is an academic medical center, as you mentioned, you have uh, many residents, nurses, medical students. How has their education either improved or been put on hold because of this at UMass? Well, the first challenge is just communication internal in general. What we very quickly learned is that we needed to communicate a lot more. And so when you have a command center structure, it lends itself to having a morning briefing and an afternoon briefing. And we on, on those calls, we had over 500 of our clinical and administrative leaders. Each of them, so like each of our chairs of academic departments then had their own daily briefings or huddles where they were cascading the information down to the faculty, to the residents, to the students. And so we communicated in a much more robust way than we ever had in the past. We started to do live uh, video town halls. It's something I had wanted to do for a very long time. And so we, we just bit the bullet and took the plunge. And so a couple times a week, we were able to connect with up to 1,000 to 1,500 frontline staff by setting up a Zoom conference call. And in those, opening it up QA sessions so we could hear directly what's on the minds, like what's confusing people today about what we're trying to explain. We had a fascinating experience because we are the teaching hospital partner of uh, UMass Medical School, which is the the state's only public uh, medical school. Because this hit in March and April as the medical students were about to graduate, the school decided to accelerate their graduation. So they graduated at the end of March and those fourth year medical students then were eligible to work for a couple months before going on to their internship kind of a super intern kind of position. Over half of those fourth year students took that opportunity. And clearly it'll be an experience they remember for the rest of their life. It will probably impact their careers and how they think about their role in healthcare. It was a really important part of our overall workforce strategy, which included then also for residents and fellows who were in the midst of their training, the ACGME, the National Residency Coordinating, declared that we were in a phase three pandemic, which is this unusual situation where residents can be diverted out of their usual training requirements to serve a critical need, which means that, you know, like the surgical residents 
we had them do much more critical care during that time period than they would normally do during their training. And they were also an incredible, important uh, you know, part of the overall solution. That was true across many other residencies and, and fellowships. Wow, that's tremendous. I mean, again, you had something you said right there where you were hoping to do at some point pre-COVID these Zoom sessions with the staff, and then COVID accelerated that. Uh, reminds me of a lot of different things that that most organizations, including us at Osmosis, have had to do. Like we had been wanting to release our continuing medical education courses for a while, and then COVID hit, and our first CME course was a three-hour CME on, on COVID that 70,000 people have taken. What we have definitely learned is we were able to move much more nimbly during the pandemic, do things much faster, much faster decision-making, the willingness to roll out things when they're in less perfect state. So instead of processing something and, and getting it perfect for several months, you know, getting it out and then truly testing it today and making changes and doing iterative cycles, right? So we've actually done a formal thought process, lessons learned. As a leadership team, as an institution, what worked well during the four months of the pandemic and what do we want to take out of that and actually build into the way we now do our work going forward and there's been some really important lessons from that so hopefully we'll be you know better as a team and better as an organization forces change management and and that, I mean, that's the andy grove quote that i know you've heard having gone to hbs of how bad organizations are destroyed during crisis good organizations survive crisis and great organizations thrive and become better yeah Internally, it's also really been a, a great morale booster for our staff. There's been great appreciation from the community, from the public, around the role that we're playing. This general idea that our, our workers are heroes, right, which is absolutely true. You know, I had the, the privilege of having an organization with 10,000 heroes in it. That has a really positive internal cultural lift, and people are feeling uh, really good. So we want to build on that you know, as we move forward and capture the staff engagement and, and make it even stronger going forward. I'm curious, like, what are some of the major lasting changes that you're going to be hoping to make at UMass and that you think the American healthcare system as a whole should make because of this? Well, I think I'd, I probably would start with healthcare disparities and, and health inequity. It's something that I had done a fair amount of work on in my previous time at the Brigham. We have about two decades worth of literature that has basically clearly established that we have healthcare disparities around a whole a host of things, right? Starting with things like a heart attack and strokes, surgical conditions. In Boston, there's a striking infant and maternal mortality differential up to fourfold different, depending on which neighborhood you live in. And so COVID-19 is just the latest illustration of uh, systemic healthcare disparities. And so for us here at UMass, it's, um, it really has prompted us, how can we uh, understand our own data? How can we partner with the city and the county to really drill into, yes, what is the extent of the disparities? And then what are some possible root causes? So we have a formal equity task force with the city and the county. And it really ties in then to the other discussion that's going on around structural racism. Because in the end of the day, it's the root causes which get at housing, job security, transportation, those are all actual root causes of increased transmission risk. And in Massachusetts, there's some data coming out that shows that the, the service workers are actually at two or three times higher positive testing rate than physicians and nurses. And so 
how can we be part of that solution? So as a healthcare system, we have a responsibility to understand our own performance and then figure out how we partner with the larger community to be a partner, to have a broader impact on this issue of disparities as well as the root causes of racism. So it's all coming together of the critical role of the hospital as a public health driver. In, in many ways, having the pandemic on top of the racial inequality that's been brought to the forefront, you know, why not change everything at the same time to come out even stronger, right? Yeah, it is a lot to digest. We kind of have two pandemics going on in parallel, if you want to think about it that way. So the reason we called the podcast Raise the Line is everyone knows the concept of flattening the curve, which is why we encourage you know everyone to wear a mask and socially distance. But raising the line is the other part of the solution, which is what you're very familiar with, having led UMass through this crisis, more ventilators, more personal protective equipment, more telehealth and home health, and also more training. And so, so much of what we do is we focus on training future healthcare professionals. I'm curious, what advice would you give someone starting their career as a nurse or a physician at this point? I think for starters, I would probably give them the same advice that I, you know, I would give folks, a lot of folks that come and see me. First of all, you know, healthcare still is a it's an amazing career and profession. In general, I, I encourage people to find some aspect of healthcare that they're really passionate about. And if they have that passion, they're going to be really successful because um, they'll be happy and happiness fosters more and more commitment and success will follow that. So I, I think that it's more important than ever that we support young folks going into healthcare. This is a really difficult time to be signing up because, you know, the risks seem uh, much higher than in the past. But uh, history has many, many, many dozens of examples like this, and providers have gotten us through every time. Taking care of patients, but also participating in the clinical research and the research to find the solution and the cures. And one of the very exciting things here at UMass, we were one of the first participating hospitals in the remdesivir antiviral trial before it got released for emergency use and, and after that as well. So we've had close to 200 patients get that treatment. We were also the first hospital in Massachusetts to do the convalescent serum. This is taking serum from a, somebody who's recovering and giving serum to somebody who's really sick. And now we're starting to participate in the vaccine trials and monoclonal antibody and about uh, pulled antibodies. So we're kind of on the front line of trying to beat back both prevention and the treatment, which for me at an academic medical center is really the sweet spot. It's taking care of the sickest, but also trying to think about how you cure disease or prevent disease. My last question is actually related to what you've done, not only to take care of your the population at UMass, but your staff, you know, the 10,000 plus heroes who work at UMass. So we, we work with an organization called Thrive Global on mental health for staff, because even before COVID, there was a problem of burnout. I know you guys have had some leadership in this regard. Do you mind just talking about some specific actions UMass has taken to sure. take care of their caregivers? It's a really good point. Our approach was trying to be really holistic around our workforce. Uh, it was a program that we called Caring for Our Caregivers. So, you know, to me, it starts with job one is to make sure that caregivers feel safe. So to the extent that we absolutely could have the right PPE and the mask and the right education so that they used it appropriately, uh, we were able to go very quickly to universal masking, which was a, a very positive step, masking for both our patients and providers, doing everything possible to, to keep folks safe. 
and then helping just with the the stress of their own life. So uh, simple things like a lot of caregivers chose to not go home, and so to provide them some interim housing so that they felt safe and their family felt safe, and to make that easier. Groceries, childcare is a huge issue, and those are incredible stressors. People need different things. Some people really respond to meditation, relaxation, mindfulness, which is really important. So we had a, a portfolio of those programs. Some people really benefit from just talking to their peers, so a, a peer support network. And we tried initially to have people reach out to a network of peers and then we found that wasn't happening enough, so we actually did peer rounding. So literally going to the units, engaging people in conversations, and that was even more useful because people, you know, it caught more people and engaged them in that. And then some people need, you know, counseling or more formal help. You know, some people will be having post-traumatic stress disorder coming out of this, and so we're really keeping our eyes open for that subset of the staff who need even more formal counseling or support. But it's a huge issue. And it hasn't gone away because as we face the potential of a wave two, in some ways, the next wave is going to be even more challenging, right? Everybody can rally. You have the, the adrenaline. You can get through the first incident. But now that they've gone through it once, it's going to make the second round even more stressful in some ways. So we've been thinking a lot about that as well. This has been a really, really fascinating conversation, very wide ranging and having some employees actually in central Massachusetts at Osmosis. I'd like to thank you for taking care of that community. I uh, really appreciate all that you and your team have done, the 10,000 plus heroes that you employ. Thank you very much. It's, it's, it's my pleasure and honor to lead this uh, great institution. Great. And with that, thank you to the listeners for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. Absolutely. Thanks. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>